If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 12, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 14. If you are a student of the Bible or have read much in the New Testament, you are familiar with this phenomenon wherein New Testament letters tend to wind down with a list of concluding exhortations or commandments, usually in rapid succession. They're given there at the end of the book. What you'll observe if you look closely at them, usually they're the kind of thing that we look over quickly, assuming a level of understanding that's most of the time beyond what we enjoy, is that those commandments at the end of the book are built upon the framework or the foundation that has been established in the theological body of the book itself. We're nearing the end of the book of Hebrews, and although it's cast somewhat differently, we've approached that part of the typical New Testament letter where those rapid secession type commandments are given. Only there's a little added rhetorical flourish here at the end of the book where those commandments are nearly given in rapid form or order without much explanation or demonstration are here mixed together with illustrations and examples that increase the power of persuasion as the preacher brings the sermon to a close. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse number 14. If you've found your way there in your copy of God's Word, please join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of His Holy Word. The Bible says in verse 14, pursue peace with everyone, and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that uh, of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and by it defiling many. Make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for one meal. For you know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance, though he sought it with tears. You've not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. And if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm terrified and trembling. Instead, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels in festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to God who is the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, to Jesus, mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. Make sure that you don't reject the one who speaks. For if they didn't escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. This expression yet once more indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is created things so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us hold on to grace. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. The first commandment in our passage couldn't be clear. It's found in verse number 14. Pursue peace with everyone, which is straightforward enough, you find similar commandments in the New Testament as much as is possible, live at peace with all people, the Apostle Paul says. But here, peace is coupled together with the pursuit of holiness. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness, as though these pursuits ran simultaneous to one another. Indeed, they do. There seems to be a, a prevailing misconception, especially in evangelicalism, that there is some conflict between the pursuit of peace with all people 
and the pursuit of holiness in Christ. Now, I understand that exercising Christian principles, observing Christian values, can at times put you at odds with an ever-increasingly hostile world when it comes to all things Christian. Like, I get that. And then when you match that together with this experience where if you are less than affirming of something that lands outside of your value system, then you're automatically presumed to harbor some hatred or hostility toward an idea or a people who ascribe to a different worldview or a different set of values. Now, those are not true. Disagreeing with something is quite different from hating someone who has a disagreement with you. But I think, I think in our cultural context, we've likely contributed to this idea in the way we have treated this union of holiness and pursuing peace with all people. I believe, I really believe, and I will die on this hill, that you can be biblically convictional and at the same time kind and tender and benevolent toward those around you who may see things from an entirely different perspective with an entirely different worldview. I'm not talking about making concessions, conceding Christian values, and certainly not compromising when it comes to the gospel. But believing the gospel of Jesus Christ should not make us be big jerks. It ought to make us be kind and tender and soft and meek and humble toward those around us. There, there are those people who seem to be born with a naturally pleasant disposition. They're just kind people. And then when that kindness is coupled together with the presence of God's Holy Spirit, the product can be just astounding. The church that I pastored before coming here, when I would come to passages on kindness, there was a man I could always point to. Now, I'm, I, I don't do this making examples of people in the congregation thing because it can be a dangerous uh, game to play, right? And then there's that Mark Twain quote from last week, there are a few things more annoying than a good example. So I don't want to put anybody in a bad spot. And I don't want to put me in a bad spot either. But when it came to kindness... In that setting, I, I, I could point over to the left side of our congregation and I could just say, be like Mr. Jake. You know, old guy in our church, he gave a Werther's candy to everybody he met for all of his life. The Werther's original, they should, they should name the facility after Mr. Jake. Just tender and kind, a big man's man, and yet so humble and meek and lowly toward other people and a faithful follower of Jesus until his very last breath. But not all of us are born with such a naturally kind, meek, gentle disposition. And I would put myself in that most of us category. I have it on good authority because my wife tells me that tone in conversation really matters a lot. And, you know, in public... I know how to conduct myself without shaming me and you as a church, and more importantly, shaming Jesus, right? You work to sort of soften the tone and to relate to people in a way that's understood as pleasant and endearing and socially acceptable. But at the end of the day, when all of my words have been used up long ago, I do what we call at our house, lazy mouth. And I just say it like I want to say it, like nobody else is watching. The problem is my wife and my children are, are watching. And I'm reminded quickly that tone matters in conversation. What I need in that moment is that God would, through the sanctifying work of his Holy Spirit, do something with the gruff and rough and more angry than kind sounding tone that is my natural lazy mouth tone in that moment that God would shape and refine a naturally unpleasant disposition and make it over into the image of his son, Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that's what you need as well. Of all people, 
We as followers of Jesus should be regarded as kind and meek and gentle and tender. Our actions toward the world around us should not be the thing that repels the world from us. If we are to be rejected, if we are to be opposed, if we are to be despised, let it be for the message of the gospel, not some quirk in our personality. You don't have to be brash and prickly and off-putting to be a faithful follower of Jesus. But somewhere along the way, this has found itself listed among the spiritual gifts. And I just don't get it. Of all people, we who have been touched by the amazing grace of Jesus should extend the same measure of grace toward those around us. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. It's not that the pursuit of holiness is making us more and more difficult to bear with. It is that the legitimate pursuit of holiness in our life should make us more endearing to our friends and neighbors. Sloughing off the rough edges. Softening our tone. Making us, yes, convictional, but at the same time, remarkably kind and benevolent and generous and tender toward the world, world around us. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Holiness here is not so much about the absence of sin. That's an experience reserved for us in heaven. Holiness is about the pursuit of Jesus in all our ways. Typically, what we do is we compartmentalize our life, and we have work life, and we have play life, we have hobby life, special interest life, church life, we have these various arenas of life, these compartments. In certain compartments we bring to Jesus, and then for some people in certain parts of their life, they make the assessment and determine that practically speaking, it would be more beneficial for them to reserve them for themselves in more worldly ways. But the pursuit of holiness requires that we bring all of our life before Christ at the cross. That with every ounce of our being, we live in the constant pursuit of the face of Jesus. That's what holiness looks like. Here, verse 14 is careful to note, without it being holiness, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It's, it's, it's not that you attain a certain level of holiness or you're able to maintain a certain pursuit of Jesus over the duration of your life. And the reward for that in the end is that you get to see God. It is that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God has granted that you would see something of his face in the beauty of his son. And the result of that experience is a desire to pursue him for all of your days with your last day and last breath. Since striving, spent striving to see the face of Christ. Pursue peace with everyone and be holy. Second commandment comes in verse Number 15, make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and by it defiling many. I've called the author of Hebrews the preacher for several weeks because it's less cumbersome than saying the author of Hebrews. But it's also appropriate because the book of Hebrews is not just a book, it's not just a letter, it is a sermon. And its function was to be read before the people. And I've, I've preached through Hebrews before, but I think the thing that I have appreciated in a new way in preaching through Hebrews this time is the rhetorical excellence of the preacher. Take, for example, this idea of root of bitterness. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up. He's speaking on multiple levels here, and he does it very cleverly. Root of bitterness within the context of verse number 15 is specific to allowing something to begin to grow in your heart, something to fester in your heart that would beset you in your walk with Jesus. Don't let anything get deep down into your heart that would create this experience of coming short of the grace of God. Don't let unbelief creep in. Don't let the sin that so easily ensnares us creep in. 
But also, root of bitterness is used in a more traditional sense. And it's coupled together with this idea of pursuing peace with everyone. The opposite of that is allowing unforgiveness and bitterness to be harbored in our heart. That too can beset you in your walk with Jesus. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble and by it defiling many. The charge here, personal to us, is that we would not abandon the Lord. Don't abandon Jesus. That seems simple enough. But I would warn you that almost no one who abandons Jesus abandons him believing that they've abandoned Jesus. This is a relatively new phenomenon where people are public about deconstructing their faith or leaving their faith behind. I would note here there are no former Christians. There are just people who were never really saved in the first place. But this is what's being warned against in our passage. Don't abandon the Lord. You've been toying with the idea of the gospel, coming near the gospel for your salvation. Don't turn back. Hand to plow, pressing on, persevering with him, seeking his face pleading and praying that God would do the work of turning your heart, drawing you to himself. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God. When they drift away, it typically happens incrementally over the course of time. Minor adjustments being made, just slight shifts. It's usually reflected in their departure from the fellowship of the church. Now, I get that Leaving the church is not the same as leaving Jesus, but these two more times than not run parallel to one another, which speaks to the critical importance of the fellowship of the church for our ability to walk faithfully with Jesus. Bit by bit, over the course of time, there's a drifting away. It can be the product of harboring unforgiveness. It can be the product of, of harboring sin in our heart can be the product of our giving ourselves entirely over to the lust of the flesh. It can be the product of a seed of unbelief growing in the heart. Most believe themselves to be doing something somehow right along the way, even as they abandon the Lord. But notice, notice in our verse that really the, the primary purpose of verse, verse 15 is not personal. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God. There is an implied concern for the well-being of those around us spoken to in our passage. It's, it's what I call forever evangelism. It's not just that we seek to win people to faith in Jesus at the beginning of their journey. It is that even among brothers and sisters in Christ, we are continuing to invite one another into the gospel to faith and repentance, persevering faith and repentance. It's not just that we need the gospel in the beginning. We need the gospel every day of our life, and we don't seek to speak of this constant need for grace and repentance, for faith in what Christ has done for us. This is how the church is supposed to function. This is how small groups are supposed to function. This is how the nuclear family is supposed to function. This is how even the husband and wife relationship is, to, is supposed to function. I, I have observed in now 17 years of marriage that there are times when, when my heart grows colder than usual toward the things of God. That the that the flame is not full in my heart for the things of Jesus. And what I've observed is those typically run concurrent with times in the life of my wife when she is especially passionate about the things of Jesus. And I think somehow the Lord orchestrated it this way, that when I need to have my heart warmed to the gospel, I'm able to draw near to the one God has provided for me, that that dwindling flame would be fanned full fire once again. And I have observed that in times in my wife's life when she may be feeling somewhat distant or growing 
cold, where there's become monotony about her devotional and prayer life. Those have tended to be times when I was fixated on the things of Jesus and the fire was full flame in my heart. I'm even seeing this now with, with our boys. We're at a place where they're walking with Jesus somewhat independent from us. And there are times when I'm encouraged by their faithfulness to Jesus, specifically in recent days, their faithfulness to share the message of the gospel with those around them at school, at work, and at play. That's incredibly encouraging for me. The opposite is true. There are times when, when mom and dad are hot-hearted for Jesus and we, we want to bring them along. You know, sometimes you have the family Bible study and you have this idea of what it's going to look like. You go in with your heart full of Jesus. The passage is on unity. There's almost a fist fight before family worship time is over. We have some of those at our house too. You think you're all going to sing Kumbaya and you're just trying to get out of the room without clawing each other's eyeballs out. I think God orchestrated it that way, that there could be mutual encouragement that in our moment of weakness, those he's provided for us could model the power and the beauty of the gospel for us, that we could draw near to their warmth of heart when we may be ourselves quite cold. Same is true within our connect group ministries. This is why you need to be a part of a connect group. Because you're going to come to that pivotal moment in your life when you are at your absolute worst. When something has happened to you or when you've done the dumbest thing that you've ever done, when you have sinned grievously against God. And there'll be those around you in that network of friends and faithful disciple makers who while your heart has been growing cold, their heart has been warming to the things of God and you'll be able to draw near that warmth and find encouragement even in the valley of the shadow of death. This is what we are to do as a people Make sure that not only you, but for heaven's sake, no one else falls short of the grace of God that has been afforded us in Jesus. Third command in our passage comes in verses 16 and 17. Make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for one meal. For you know that later... When he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance, though he sought it with tears. You remember Esau? Genesis chapter 25 describes Esau and his brother Jacob. Esau was the older brother, ruddy, strong. He was a hairy man, the Bible says, with, with sun-tanned skin. So hairy that his father would eventually mistake his arm for goat skin. That's hairy. Jacob, the younger, more fragile brother, was somewhat more reserved, not as capable in terms of physical strength as Esau, the older brother, but he had far outmatched Esau in terms of his cunning. There came a day when Esau had been out in the field. He was out hunting, killing it, and bringing it home. And he came in and he said what my children say six times a day. If I don't have something to eat, I will die. Jacob said, I happen to have this bowl of soup. And I'll give it to you. This momentary passing sense of satisfaction and pleasure. If you'll only give me your birthright. And for what couldn't have lasted more than 10 minutes, Esau gave away his position within the family. Now, we're warned here against immorality and irreverence. I think this to be a clear reference to sexual immorality and then irreverence in general. Esau becomes the pattern of that because he is driven by the lust of the flesh, the hunger in his belly. But the invitation of our passage is to resist the lust of the flesh, the hunger in our gut, the thirst in our mouth, the natural but now by temptation distorted desires of the human body. Be influenced not by the desires of the flesh, but by the direction of God's Holy Spirit abiding in us. Make sure there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for one meal. People are often troubled by what's described in verse 17. You know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance, though he sought it with tears. People don't like the idea of Esau 
desiring repentance, even to the point of expressing great emotion and tears and not receiving that. Do you mean to tell me that Esau was not allowed to repent? What I mean to tell you is this. There is a window of opportunity with regards to repentance that will not always be open to you. People think they come willy-nilly to Jesus when they make up their mind they want to come to him when it is convenient for them. The offer of salvation is free, but it's a one-day offer only. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus says in his own public ministry, except the Spirit draw him, no man would come. If the Spirit of God is drawing, you had better break down your pride and yield to the work of God's Holy Spirit before your window of opportunity is closed forever. I can remember as a very foolish 19-year-old boy, hearing the gospel clearly, plainly, for the first time in my life. I don't know that it was the first time that I had heard it, but I know for certain it was the first time I had understood it. And I believed intellectually, I was affirming, I was saying, yes, this is it. Clearly, this is what the Bible is teaching about salvation. And just as soon as I've had my fun, and this season in my life has run its course, when I've done some of the things I desire to do, and I've lived these college years the way I desire to live them, I'll return to this message before it's too late, and I'll be safe on the day of judgment. Jesus had other plans. Brothers and sisters, if the voice of the good shepherd is calling, you would do well to heed his voice today before the window closes or he resorts to extreme measures to get the attention you have refused until now to give. Notice here that for Esau, his uncontrolled desires led to regrettable outcomes. The same will be true for me and you if we're not careful. Some of you are playing around with various expressions of immorality. You've got this relationship. You say somehow things are different for us, pastor. You don't understand. We love each other. We're going to get married. It's just not the time for us. Mom and dad have pressured that we'd finish school or they wouldn't understand the nature of our relationship or we're just not financially stable enough to be where we need to be or it's just more financially reasonable for us. It's a better economic situation if we're cohabiting even outside of marriage. We haven't quite decided that we want to be together forever. We're just going to be together at least temporarily. Now, you know, our situation is, is different than someone else's. You just don't understand the nuances of our situation. Or you're toying around with some vice, some substance, and you think that the outcome is going to be different for you than it is for someone else. You give yourself over to the lust of the flesh, and it will always bring the same results. Your death or your demise, it will always lead to destruction. I had a, a buddy in the old days. He, he was really one of those guys I regarded kind of as a bad man. I mean, and, and in those days, that's like a good thing, right? Big guy, tough guy, wasn't scared of anything. I mean, I'd have been afraid of him in, in those days. If he decided he'd want to put his hands on me, I'd have probably had to pick up something, you know? One of those kinds of guys. He was a man's man. And, and we did all of the things. You know, we pound around together. We did all of the things together that you do in, in, in that lost state far from God far from God, broken and trying to fill voids in our hearts. The situation was the same for me as it was for him. Both of us desperately lost. And there was a whole company of us lost boys who ran together and indulged the lust of the flesh in a variety of different ways, godless, heathenish ways. Big man, tough man. I've seen him in action, been alongside him. I'm talking about a man's man. I got, I got a call on, on Friday from a mutual friend from the old days who's now come to faith in Jesus. He was going to see him. He's got days left to live. He's got days left to live. This guy's my age. He's got days left to live. He's, he's dying now. A, a, a prevent, an otherwise preventable death. Because he refused to let go of his vice, not forever, but for long enough to receive the treatment that would have saved his life. The hope was to get the gospel to him there 
on his deathbed, now barely more than 60 pounds. Barely more than 60 pounds. And they arrived to find him unresponsive, unaware, and unable to communicate. And I'm telling you, you keep playing around with your vices. You keep toying around with your various expressions of immorality. And your fate will be the same. It may not be as nasty. It may not be as overtly ugly as his, but the result will be the same. The product of, of giving yourself over to the lust of the flesh will always be regrettable outcomes. Look to verse 18. In verses 18 through 27, there's an illustration here of this unique position that we enjoy in Jesus. And this is, this is great. Verse 18 says, you've not come to what could be touched to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they couldn't bear what was commanded. And if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am terrified and trembling. Every Jew in the congregation would understand full well what the preacher was referring to here. Speaking of Israel's experience at Mount Sinai, when in the midst of their wilderness wanderings, as God had called this fledgling nation out of their Egyptian bondage, headed toward the promised land, God would gather them to himself at Mount Sinai. Moses would be dispatched up the mountain. He would receive there the law of God for the people of God, thereby establishing Israel as a nation under the covenant command of God. It was a momentous event in the history of Israel as a nation. Not just one that they would look back to historically as significant for their beginnings, but one that they would look back to as significant for their relationship to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. There at the mountain, the ground would quake beneath their feet. Lightning would strike and thunder would clap. The skies grew dark as the voice of God boomed forth from the mountain. If even an animal was to touch the base of the mountain, they were to be stoned to death, if not stricken dead by the severe presence of God there at Mount Sinai. The Bible says the glory of God descends in a cloud on the mountain. Moses is changed and history is turned by what unfolds in the moments after. In Deuteronomy 4 Moses is reflecting back on that experience. Deuteronomy is a series of speeches or sermons for the nation of Israel, providing a theological interpretation of Israel's own history. Moses, reflecting on that moment, says, Who, who has heard the voice of God as speaking forth from the fire and lived? It was an astounding experience for Israel. God had spoken and not in a figurative sense. This is not something happen, happening metaphorically. The voice of God boomed forth from Sinai and established this covenant with the nation of Israel. But as incredible as that experience was for Israel, the preacher wants us to see in verses 22 and following that what God has done through his son Jesus by far surpasses that of Israel. Verse 22. Instead, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels in festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to God who is the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. Times past, they came to Mount Zion, but God to, to, Mount, to Mount Sinai. But God has brought you to Mount Zion. In the past, they came through Moses to Mount Sinai that he might go to God on their behalf. But Jesus has come to you, and in this context, you have come to Jesus. You've not come to a mountain that might be touched with hands. To the voice of one is speaking forth from the fire. You have come to Jesus, the full and final and perfect revelation of the Father. He is the image of the invisible God, the bright radiance of his great glory. This is a, a neat rhetorical way for the preacher to say what God has done for us in Jesus through the new covenant by far surpasses anything that has been done in times past. 
If you thought it was stellar, special, amazing that God would do what he did for Israel at Mount Sinai, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because God would invade human history through his son Jesus. It wouldn't be that Moses would go up the mountain to see God. It would be that God would come down to be in the midst of man, our Emmanuel, God with us. That everything that was weak and frail, all of our incapabilities bound up in the old covenant, God would remedy in his son Jesus, providing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Not just in that he grants salvation, but enabling in us this capacity for obedience and holiness and righteousness that's found in the indwelling power of God's spirit in us. What Jesus has done for us, no one else can do. All of our weaknesses, all of our inabilities, all of our faults and our failures are fixed forever, finally, in Christ. The point of this discourse on comparison between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion is made or emphasized in verse 25. Make sure that you don't reject the one who speaks. For if they didn't escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. God spoke from Sinai. And to violate what God commanded from the mountain brought great repercussions. But now God has spoken through his son Jesus. And to fail to embrace with all of our heart the promises of the gospel through Jesus Christ, is, is by far a greater violation than anything that might be done under that old covenant. Listen, God has spoken. That's the message. God's, God's spoken to us. God has spoken. We've mastered the ability in the modern church experience to soothe the guilt of our conscience for failure to do what God has commanded us to do or for doing things that violate his command by learning a lot about the Bible. We tend to be impressed with people who have a lot of information about the Bible without a lot of regard for or interest in the character of the person himself or herself for that matter. We gather ourselves in our holy huddles and we ask Sunday school questions and we learn to give Sunday school answers, insulating ourselves from the full impact of God's word for us. We are, in the words of the Bible, hearers of the word only, failing to be the doers that God has called us to be. God's word is intended to get down into the marrow of our life and to make a real difference for us. We read passages from the Bible not so we can reflect on how that relates to someone else. We, we read passages in the Bible for nourishment of soul for transformation, not so that we can feel justified in our prejudices against certain activities or our sense of being offended because of what someone else did. If I had a nickel for every time I preached and heard these words at the end of a message, oh, I wish so-and-so would have been there. What about what God has to say to you? What about what God intends to do in your life through the written word? What about the refining, sanctifying effect that God intends to have in you, in your life this morning, given what he said in his word? We, we deflect. We have this uncanny ability to see everyone else's sin, the speck in everyone else's eye, looking around all the while, the log that's stuck in our own. Preacher is saying here, God has spoken. He's done so with force and with power through his son, having revealed himself. Listen. Oh, hear the voice of God. Verse 26 says, his voice shook the earth at that time. But now he's promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. This expression yet once more indicates the removal of what can be shaken. 
that is, created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. The point here is that we have become citizens of an unshakable kingdom. Now again, the, the driving practical force in Hebrews is to persevere. Don't fall short of grace. Remembering that we belong to an unshakable kingdom has the effect of creating sustaining power in us. We hold fast in part because we remember that we belong to an unshakable kingdom. When the ground beneath our feet begins to quake, we rest easy because our citizenship is in an unshakable kingdom. As we are constantly coached in the 24-hour news cycle to live in a perpetual state of fear and anxiety, we sleep well because God does not sleep. We are citizens of an unshakable kingdom. Like I get people who don't know Jesus, who just have their finger in the wind and they're scared to death. The winds are not in our favor. But I do not get this constant state of fear and anxiety for Christian folk at the state of our world. It's always been a mess. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. It just expresses itself in, in different ways. And listen, listen carefully, and some will be offended at this. But America is not the same as the kingdom of God. This country may fall and fail greatly. Whoever is in the White House. But the kingdom of God will stand. Our primary citizenship is not here. It's in an unshakable kingdom with a king who always does what is right. When the rest of the world is cowering in fear, wringing their hands in great anxiety, we should be resting well and well at peace because we belong to an unshakable kingdom. Verse 28 provides for us the last exhortation in our passage. The Bible says here, therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let's hold on to grace. That's that connection we just talked about. When you realize that your citizenship is in heaven, it completely changes your perspective on this world. Like when I go out of this country, my last trip out of the country was in January of 2019, and I'm not the itchy feet traveler that, that some of our pastoral staff is, but I got to tell you, I'm about ready to go somewhere and tell somebody about Jesus. When, when, I'm, when I'm out of this country, I, and I watch the news, because you always want to watch the news when you're out of the country, you know? And I see, for in this example, India. All oh, things are bad. Got immigration issues. All oh, things are bad. We got bad leadership, political issues. We got major challenges. All oh, things are bad. You, you realize I hear that differently than I might at home. Do you know why? Because I don't live there. I'm just passing through. And Christian brothers and sisters, if you would realize that you don't live here, you're just passing through. I'm telling you, it will radically transform your outlook on life in general. We're just pilgrims passing through. We don't belong here. There's a connection between this reality and our ability to hold fast to grace. Now look at the last sentence. By it, meaning grace, by grace, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Reverence and awe is just another way of saying amazement and gratitude, which is, which is just another way of saying thanksgiving, which is just another way of saying worship. Did you find yourself in song earlier in our service reflecting on God's goodness to you, his faithfulness to you? I was looking around in our earlier service at at the faces of those who were singing and worshiping, and even a few that I was able to see in this last service. And how moved many of you were as you sang those words. 
And I, I can see the wheels of your mind turning. And in some cases, I was looking into emotional faces and I knew their experience. I know what's going on in their life. And I know they're worshiping out of a place of brokenness and sadness and maybe some degree of anxiety. And, and it, was good, it was good for their soul to give expression to their confidence in the power of God to meet all of their needs according to his riches and grace in Christ Jesus. I saw that in so many faces here this morning. So often, thanksgiving, gratitude, worship, is, is the antidote to anxiety, the antidote to vulnerability to sin, the antidote to unbelief, the antidote to doubt, the antidote to falling short of the grace of God available to us through Jesus Christ. You know, the old guard got it right when they sang, count your many blessings. Sometimes just pausing and reflecting on the countless ways that God has provided for your needs can create more worship in you than a thousand sermons. When I think about how good God has been to me, the grace that he's shown me, apart from the grace of Jesus, I'm on the other end of that phone call I described for you moments ago today, apart from the grace of God. Apart from the grace of God in the lives of so many of you, your families are in disarray. Apart from the grace of God for so many of you, the spouse to your right or left is not your spouse. Apart from the grace of God toward you, the family entrusted into your care would be an absolute shambles. Apart from the grace of God in the lives of so many, you'd be given over to the very vice and immorality this passage and others is warned against this morning. Apart from the grace of God, there is no end to the disaster that we might have already made to the life that has been graciously set before us. God has been immeasurably good to us as a people. Don't ever forget it. What you might find in your quiet contemplation of the many ways he has shown you favor is a heart to worship him in spirit and in truth. Just the dose you need to persevere through some painful or difficult seasons in your life. So sometimes I, th I think we've talked a lot about the privileges of the gospel, what he's done for us is just incalculable. What Jesus has done for us is unmatched by anything else that might be offered us. What Jesus has done for us is of great value. We, we talk about the promises and the privilege. We, we talk of our destiny being in heaven, our citizenship being there, and what awaits us even after our death. And, and I worry sometimes in a Sunday morning setting like this, because this is to some extent on Sunday morning public space. Like I, I want people of every background and experience to come to our worship services and to be made welcome and loved on and cared for. That's a great, great thing. But this public space experience overlaps with a distinctly Christian context. And, and I, want, I want you to know that although the promises of the gospel and the privileges of the gospel, all those good things that we've talked about as ours this morning, that although offered to you freely by God's grace, are exclusive to those who repent of their sin and believe in Jesus. Now, and I want you to know that I don't say that to be mean-spirited. I say that because I want you to have it. I want you to have it, to experience the rescue of Christ from the mess that you've made, the fullness of joy that can only be found in him. You're chasing after satisfaction and pleasure in things that cannot bring you satisfaction and pleasure. Come, taste and see that the Lord our God is good. And even where you may have objections to the standard he's established for our life, I'll promise you, on my life, money-back guarantee that what you'll find in Jesus by far surpasses anything this world could offer you. Come to him. Know that these promises, the privileges of the gospel, they're exclusive to us. But by the grace of God, you may be one of us. The Bible says this plainly in a number of places. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to God except through me. 
Jesus is the only name given among men whereby we must be saved. You can only be saved in the power and the name of Jesus. Come to him. Come to him. Come. Know him. Love him. Treasure him. Strive to know him more with each day of your life. And at the end of our race, find the warm embrace of the nail-scarred hands who gave his life for us. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for these moments to reflect on so many of the promises and the privileges of the gospel. Thank you for the direction in life that you have afforded us in these verses. I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, a heart to well embrace what you've commanded of us this morning. I pray, God, that in ways that by far surpass the ability of any preacher, you would attend this message and allow that it land well and with weight in the hearts of those who are gathered here. I, I pray that you would grant a spirit of discernment. We could examine ourselves to see that we're in the faith, that we would see ourselves rightly that knack for seeing other shortcomings and blindness to our own is true not just in terms of making moral decisions. It's also true of assessing our spiritual condition. So help us to see what is right. Help us to see what is wrong. And grant us the grace to overcome it. I pray, God, that you would call those in darkness into light. That there would be an understanding of the gospel enjoyed by all gathered here. I pray for the church, Lord, that you would draw us near to yourself, that you would hold us close. God, that you would seek out and save the lost in our time together. I pray that you would fan to full fire once again the dwindling flame in the hearts of some gathered here. God, warm our hearts to the gospel. I pray that you would attend to the advancing of your kingdom, building up this local body, Lord, that we might be busily about the business of doing the Father's will and advancing your kingdom. I ask that your good will be done in the next moments. And I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.